I know full well that a lot of people are going to look at our choices and look at our taste in colours and, you know, crazy things that we've made and they're going to look at it and think, what the hell is that? And do you know what? If people don't like our style, then that's fine. Most of my friends, thankfully, aren't currently in the process of getting married. Not yet, anyway. I live in low-level fear of that group WhatsApp or email listing when we're going to look for bridesmaids' dresses, what the colour scheme is, and worst of all, when and where the Hindu will be and how much the fuck is going to cost. I regularly remind my friends that Hindus are not my thing and please don't be offended when I refuse to come. There literally could not be a thing on earth less designed for me. Some kind of adventure day slash fun assault course, not doing that. A European city break involving activities I didn't choose a consent to, I'm already stressed. Big night out, I wouldn't do that independently, never mind with a group of disparate women who don't actually know each other very well. In fact, I've decided the only thing I will accept is a spa. I sound very miserable, I'm actually a very good friend. This is just my, this is my one hill to die on. I'm getting my no-show in early so that they're not expectant or disappointed. I will send a gift in my place, I'll fulfil any other essential requirements, but I am not coming to Barcelona with you and 12 other people. I've got a rash on my neck just thinking about it. I've heard from older friends that when wedding season hits, it hits very hard. Over summer in particular, it's just wedding after wedding, Hindu after stag do, all over the place. You need a separate savings account specifically for other people's weddings. By the way, for my non-British listeners, Hindus and stag do's are what Brits call bachelor and bachelorette parties. A do is a party, hens and stags are gendered animals. You've probably seen a few viral news stories pop up over the last few years, stemming from a Facebook or Reddit post usually. A bride makes an outrageous demand, like insisting one of her bridesmaids lose weight or have an abortion before the wedding, both real, reported stories. Then there are the photos of crazy themed cakes or engagement photo shoot, mother-in-laws wearing white and the couples who were accused of being entitled for charging their guests more than what they paid for drinks or a 5.30am sunrise wedding start time, again, both stories that were really reported and are apparently true. These stories usually begin on a wedding shaming group. If you've never heard of this before, wedding shaming is basically exactly what it sounds like. There are two main wedding shaming groups on Facebook, as well as a subreddit. They're a dedicated place for people to post screenshots and photos of ill-fitting wedding dresses, tacky receptions, shocking bridal behaviour, and write their anecdotes about their own experience with unreasonable guests, brides, mothers-in-law, and wedding vendors. The original Facebook group, That's It, I'm Wedding Shaming, was set up in May 2018 and has over 62,000 members at the time of recording. There are a few other groups on Facebook, but they're much smaller, with just maybe a few thousand or a few hundred members. The subreddit has 49,000 subscribers, but only has a few posts a day. It's a private group that you have to be allowed to enter. This group has been like my white whale for about two months. I tried to join it five or six times with different answers and was rejected 
every time until finally I seemed to tell them what they wanted to hear and got in a few weeks ago. The next episode I have planned is, I'll give you a little preview, witchcraft. Very exciting. I've been researching both wedding shaming and witchcraft simultaneously. It's easier to join witchcraft and occult related Facebook groups than it was to join the original wedding shaming Facebook group. I answered their questions, promised to follow the rules and bang, I'm in. Practical Magic 101, Dark Magic 101, I'm a member like that. So you could say it's easier to find out how to hypothetically summon a demon than it is to look at some ill-fitting bridesmaids dresses. Even if you've never joined a group, seen a group, or even heard of these groups, you've probably been exposed to the concept of wedding shaming anyway. Since the wedding shaming trend officially began in 2018, screenshots and posts from wedding shaming groups have been picked up by the press and turned into articles they presumably think are very shareable. And they're right, these stories often contain enough shock value to go viral basically overnight. One of the most viral wedding shaming stories is the anonymous Canadian bride who wrote a vitriolic Facebook post cancelling her wedding in August 2018 because her guests wouldn't give her $1,500 each towards the costs, apparently a condition of their invite. The screenshots of her Facebook rant went crazily viral because it's honestly hard to believe she's a real person. Refinery29 called it the meltdown of the year when they reported on it. In the groups, couples, guests and wedding vendors are shamed for having a tacky or ill-fitting dress, making unreasonable demands of their guests, forcing bridesmaids to look or act a certain way, wearing white as a guest, that's a big one, choosing a themed wedding, taking bad photos or producing a bad cake or decorations, being cheap, spending too much, demanding too much, imposing a strict dress code on guests, demanding family and friends fly thousands of miles and generally being shitty about it, and just being rude, entitled, or unpleasant in some way. You might be listening to this now on a treadmill, in the car, in bed, wherever you are, and wondering why this is a thing. Well, before we dive into this, uh, and just to keep you engaged and interested in this topic, you need to know that people love this shit. They think it's really fun, they love the drama, the groups are big and active, the membership is international, this is massive, and the community continues to provide itself with material to laugh and gawp at. I've been a member of one of the two main groups for about a year, maybe a bit less, far, far before I ever thought about doing it as a topic on the podcast. When I found it, I spent ages scrolling back, reading the posts. It has a strange effect on you. It's voyeurism, plain and simple. It's quite addictive. And throughout this episode, please understand that when I say we, I am very much including myself. And maybe you, I don't know. Depends if you're new to this or not. I'm just as much of a drama-hungry lurker as anyone else. It was extremely difficult to get any wedding shamers to talk. Most people ignored my messages. One went so far as to say, I'm not in any cults, thank you. I did manage to get four of the top wedding shaming group commenters to talk. These are the people who are most active in the group. But they didn't want to be recorded. We'll be hearing their comments, read by yours truly, throughout the episode. To kick us off, this is Diane. 
I didn't know there was such a group, but when I found it I thought it was hysterical and couldn't believe it existed. I generally comment on bad fashion and bridezillas and horrible theme weddings. I think the only purpose of the group is fun. To be honest, I would never share my real life wedding problems or ask any advice in this group. And this is Jay, who chose to be anonymous. When I first found the group, I thought it was a lot of fun. My real life friends and I often laugh and bond over criticising the things we mutually dislike. So this group seemed like the internet version of that. There are some things that the group more or less unanimously agrees should be in the group. For example, camel weddings and gun-themed weddings are basically the group's definition of a shame-worthy wedding. But other things are much more controversial, like weed or Disney-themed weddings. I comment on almost all of the wedding shaming posts that pop up in my timeline. It's fun to engage with people, whether or not I agree that the particular wedding is shame-worthy. My favourites are definitely the terrible mother-in-law stories, though. There are a few wedding trends that the group hates but I like, so I always have a good laugh defending my bad taste when those topics come up. I think that wedding shaming and shaming groups in general are beneficial for a few reasons. First of all, people can blow off steam in a harmless way. Second of all, in the case of bad mother-in-law, wedding guest, fiancé stories, people can give advice on how to deal with difficult situations or validate people who've been wrongfully told that they're the problem. When many people in the group agree that a certain wedding is shameworthy, we bond together and form friendships that wouldn't have existed otherwise. When I was looking around for someone to kick off the interviews, I found Jen and Stephen Van Elk. They're wedding photographers and a real-life married couple. They also make Wedded Podcast, a weekly look at the wedding industry, wedding planning and marriage. They chatted a bit about wedding shaming on their own podcast and spent some time telling me what they think about it too. The idea of a group of people who just exist to make fun of weddings was crazy to me because we work so hard to like make beautiful images and capture people's days and capture their personality and create something for them that resonates with who they are and then to see other people like making fun of like somebody else had invested so much time and money and into planning this whole thing and then other people were just taking a dump on it online because they, they didn't like it personally and it was weird. I joined one of the groups solely out of curiosity. I was very curious on what guests were complaining about about weddings and I'm partially because I really like helping my couples I really like having um, a way to encourage them to have maybe a better party for their guests we're, we're in the industry we get it it's really hard to please everyone but it just seems like a lot of the stuff that we were seeing was complaining to complain it's just interesting to me to see the things that people are posting and the things that people are shaming. And I understand why a lot of people quit out of those groups and don't want to be a part of them. I'm kind of content just to stay in them and be an observer, though, because, well, selfishly, there's a part of me that's like, is one of our weddings ever going to be shamed in one of these groups? And I want to be there to see that. And the other part of it is uh, just... It's weird to see because we have friends who are in these groups who are also in the wedding industry and they will post photos shaming their own weddings or shaming other people's weddings. And so it kind of feels like a gossip thing. And while I don't want to participate in the gossip, I want to be aware of what's going on in the industry and I want to see what what's going on out there. So 
I can kind of stay abreast of like the the news and everything, I guess. But it still feels gross and dirty, and I hate myself for being in it. <laughs> I was gonna say, so you're secretly a bad person. Oh, I'm a terrible. I'm a terrible person. Let's not, you know, it's not mince words there. I'm terrible, but yeah. <laughs> What's especially relatable about Jen and Stephen's take on wedding shaming is their can't-look-away response. It's really difficult not to let it pique your curiosity. And it's also quite hard to go, no, this is terrible, I'm better than this, I'm leaving, and never, ever look at the content again. Even if you're not in one of the groups, this stuff gets around Twitter very quickly, and you'd have to be an extremely magnanimous person to avert your eyes and not give it a little read. The groups have a strange intrigue about them. Hands up who's already paused this episode to go and join one of the groups. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Carry on. There was some funny things that were posted in there that I feel like were really harm or harmless. Couples would post to their own stuff, their own photos. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, it was funny to be able to just make up fun of yourself. I mean, there are things about our wedding that I'm like, I would make fun of myself about now as well. But I, it got so bad that I just couldn't even take it. Like it was just grossing me out so much. Um, some of the things that people were posting that were just really, really petty. The one thing that like really put me over the edge was someone was fat shaming one of the brides. Her dress was maybe a little ill-fitting. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I could not stay in that group any longer. I got kicked out of one of the, the different groups because I said that wedding looks like it'd be a ton of fun to shoot and you're not allowed to say positive things. So <laughs> I got kicked out for that. But it's just funny to me that the people are so adamant about wanting it to stay negative. Weddings are the super positive thing. It's a declaration to the world of your love. A lot of the posts feel like jealousy where people are just posting things because they're, they're jealous somebody else is happy is kind of how it feels to me. And some of them, yeah, I would agree with that. If you read anything at all about online shaming, make it John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It came out in 2015 and it's only become more relevant. He's my favourite writer ever and this is my favourite book of his. It's a really human, empathetic look at where online shaming comes from, why we do it and most importantly the effects of it. He speaks to some people who've had their lives arguably ruined by mobs of us shaming them for one comment or photo on the internet. There are some schools of thought, some of them quoted in the book, that shaming serves a social purpose. It can be a way to right wrongs, to punish appropriately and hopefully change behaviour for the better. However, as John Ronson points out, online it often doesn't feel like that or it doesn't come across like that. It's borderline entertainment. The shamed rarely get to explain themselves and what they did or said eclipses them as a real breathing flesh and blood person. There are a lot of great quotes in this book. This is one of the most apt for this episode. I didn't see this story as being a story about trolls. Focusing on trolls would be taking the easy option. Blaming the renaissance of public shaming on some ludicrous, outrageous minority. A scattering of trolls may have piled into Justine and Adria, but trolls didn't fell those people. People like me felled them. 
I'm not sure what John Ronson would say about wedding shaming specifically, he's never commented on it publicly and the groups blew up a few years after his book came out. I think it's quite a murky genre of shaming. Most wedding shaming is done on Facebook where most people are generally happy to attach their full name to it. One click and you're on their profile looking at a picture of their kids in their header. There's no barrier of anonymity most of the time, though some do decide to post anonymously. Because the groups are private and closed, the people being shamed are unlikely to find out. It's not impossible, because it does happen, just fairly unlikely. These are not anonymous trolls causing chaos in the hope of getting an emotional reaction. Maybe that means people feel like their criticism can truly be unleashed in a kind of safe space for it. They're not trying to change or modify the person's behaviour, they're not trying to pull someone up on something, they're not really trying to get them to choose a better dress or forget the Harry Potter theme. Most of the time they're commenting after the fact anyway. Their shaming posts are for the group and the group alone. They come bearing gifts for the community basically. Sometimes someone will post for advice and support. They're having a particularly tough time with a friend or family member and wedding planning has pushed it over the edge. So they tell the story to the community. These posts potentially feel cathartic and probably very necessary to the poster. Maybe it even helps. But judging by the comments of keen shamers, my own reading habits and how quickly the screenshots sometimes circulate around Twitter, it still ends up being entertainment. The person being shamed might never ever know about it and that's the way the group likes it. It's shaming purely for entertainment, it's material, it's drama. And that made me ask myself another question, which is, is this shaming or is it criticism and what's the difference? Well this was a question I kept asking myself for quite a while until I realised that wedding shaming can be both. Criticism is defined as the expression of disapproval of someone or something on the basis of perceived faults or mistakes. Shaming is defined as making someone feel shame, which is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behaviour. Now, according to relationship therapist and psychologist Stephen Stosny, writing for Psychology Today in 2014, Criticism is destructive to relationships when it is about personality or character rather than behaviour, filled with blame, not focused on improvement, based on only one right way, I did inverted commas in the air, to do things, and belittling. I think most of the destructive examples of criticism that he's talking about can be applied to wedding shaming. The posts touch on personality, character and behaviour. They can be filled with blame and designed to belittle, they're often not focused on improvement. I wouldn't say there's one right way to do things in the wedding shamers world, but there's definitely a lot of wrong ways. The handful of wedding shamers I spoke to, who you'll hear more from throughout, think the groups are fun. They're quite flippant about it. They're not in it to right wrong specifically. I also don't think they're in it specifically to hurt anyone's feelings. They've also got this understanding that the people they're commenting on probably aren't going to read it, so they're freed by the fact that they haven't really got an audience beyond the shamers themselves. I think this is a good time to hear from another one of our wedding shamers. Next up is another anonymous member, 
who I'll call M. Just a heads up, this quote includes uh, especially bad language. Um, it's not a word I personally have a problem with, but just in case you do, uh, just a warning. It's the C one. And also I just, I can't say it in my accent without it sounding a bit ridiculous, so. I thought and still think the group is just a bunch of petty people. I try to give positive feedback despite what the page says, but if it's an obvious train wreck, I'm not going to shy away from saying that wedding is shit. I normally comment on things that I can put myself in, like a bride bitching about her cake or a mother-in-law being a cunt. I'll normally give my opinions on that. Lately I've been commenting on how dresses should be worn so they're flattering. It's wild when I see an expensive gown on a woman and it fits her horribly, like no one cared to tell her. That's shameworthy in itself. This group has zero purpose. It's mainly just for entertainment. Everyone loves drama. Whatever they think is shameable, it's all for the group, not the people they're commenting on. If people started making all the right, tasteful, ideal wedding decisions, there'd be no material left. There's one very important perspective that this episode really needs, but I couldn't get. The shamed. I reached out to a few people, but they didn't respond. I wanted to keep trying, but the deadline I'd set for myself for the episode had already been and gone. So I decided to give it focus by reflecting on the effects of shaming as much as possible. Basically to not let that side get pushed away. There'll be some listeners, I imagine, who are well into wedding shaming who think I'm taking it all far too seriously <laughs> um, and I don't get the joke. Um, I can see why they'd think that, but I feel like I have to take it seriously. Every episode of this podcast requires taking a community seriously, otherwise there's no point. I've reveled in the wedding shaming drama as much as anybody else. I've scrolled until my battery died. I've enjoyed the voyeurism. I've also become increasingly more and more uncomfortable with the content, the aim of it and the effect of it. And you can feel both. I've spent about four months with this stuff now uh, and I'm very ready to be done with it all. Uh, it's called growth, people. Wedding shaming is one example of a type of content you're probably very used to seeing on social media. Stranger shaming. Scroll through your Twitter feed particularly and you'll probably see an example of this quite quickly. Someone minding their own business or doing something a bit odd maybe, wearing something strange, being in some way remarkable, noticeable. Sometimes they're doing something really questionable or objectively bad. Whatever it is, one of us will very quickly get our phone out, record them doing the thing, and put them on blast, basically. What happens to that video or image is very much out of that person's control. Stranger shaming material can regularly rack up tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of likes, which means it will have probably appeared on tens or hundreds of thousands of other people's timelines. And so this one individual's in inverted commas, private moment, is now all over the internet. Dr. Cagle, an assistant professor of writing, rhetoric and digital studies from the University of Kentucky, knows a lot about stranger shaming. She wrote a paper this year called, brace yourself for some very academic language, Surveilling Strangers, the Disciplinary Biopower of Digital Genre Assemblages. She took some time to explain it to me in layman's terms, thank God. But yeah, so mm, could okay. you um, just 
explain uh, to people who won't know what a stranger shot okay. is. Stranger shots is the term that I came up with to describe a particular genre of photographs. It's a photograph that someone takes of a stranger, um, usually in a public place, um, without their knowledge or consent, and then shares it online specifically for the purposes of shaming. Obviously, they're not necessarily trying to shame that specific person since they're not actually engaging with the person in the photograph. But the argument that I make in the article is that the purpose of the shaming is to establish social norms around what is and isn't okay in terms of physical appearance, behavior, that kind of thing in public spaces. Okay, do this thought exercise of what it would involve before smartphones and before social media and before the World Wide Web. Let's say you saw somebody at Walmart and you thought they were dressed funny and you wanted you know, uh, 50,000 people you've never met to know is you have to take your camera to Walmart, right? And then you have to take out your camera, which only has one function. So everyone knows you're taking a picture. So you can't, you got to be real sly about it. And then you take a picture and then you take it to the developer shop, which in the U.S. often is attached to like a pharmacy. So you have to go to a place and get that roll of film developed. And then you have to pick the one that you think best showcases whatever point shaming point you're trying to make and then you have 50,000 copies of it made and then you mail it randomly to strangers right like <laughs> it doesn't even make sense outside of the context of the kind of technological networks that we have now you could also um get your photo developed and then have to find a forum or a place or a magazine or paper yeah. where 50,000 people would see it but then you don't get any yes. feedback from them and it seems like mm -mm. the point of it in part is to get comments and feedback. I mean the high that we get right from social media and from other forms of technological engagement and the, the feedback that we get from it is um, is no different here than it is from for more positive content. Do you think people are aware of the power that they have when they post a stranger shot? That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I'm inclined to say no, because the example that I use in the article, um, sort of the primary example of Balpreet Carr, who was a Sikh woman who had this happen to her where a picture of her was taken without her knowledge and posted to Reddit. When a friend of hers saw it, and alerted her to it, and, and Balpreet went online and responded to the guy, I assume guy we don't actually know, is, you know, Reddit user European douchebag. When she responded to it, he seemed legitimately taken aback um, in his response back to her. He seemed truly contrite. I'm a rhetorician by training, so I have a PhD in words, basically. We can never truly understand authorial intent. He had a lot of choices as to how he could respond um, to this woman coming and saying, hey, that's not cool what you did. Um, and one of the choices included not responding at all. Like he could have just acted like he never saw that message, but he did. And he replied to her and he said, I've learned something here today. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done this. You know, we need to think twice about it. That said, there are enough think pieces floating around out there about why this is a problem. And there are enough first person pieces of, by people who um, have been the subject of stranger shot shaming and, and found out about it that I think anyone who engages in that behavior, there's a little bit of willful denial. If you're online at all, you don't even have to be extremely online. If you're online at all, you know 
how things can pick up speed and snowball and a picture can rocket its way around the internet. So if you're not willing to take that chance, why are you posting it? Privacy and keeping things within the group is very important to the wedding shamers and the moderators especially. Wedding shaming groups are closed, generally, so you have to answer questions to enter and can get an instant ban if you don't follow all the rules. I myself have been banned from That's It, I'm Wedding Shaming, the non-ban happy edition, which is ironic. Um, Not sure why, I think it's probably because I was messaging people within the group and they just got a bit annoyed with me. Both major wedding shaming groups have a rule that says no doxing slash going real life. If you don't know what doxing is, it's basically revealing someone's personal identifying information online without their consent. So their address, full name, phone number, etc. It takes away their online privacy instantly. And it's a fundamental rule of a lot of online communities. That means posters have to edit out people's names if they post a screenshot of a message they sent or received and they have to cover up people's faces if they post a photo of someone walking down the aisle or trying on their wedding dress or whatever it is. Now you might think that that's that's fine, anonymity achieved, but it's really not that simple. You also explicitly can't screenshot posts and share them in other places outside of the group. As soon as the shaming is taken outside of the confines and the rules and the norms of the group, people are far more likely to find out they're being shamed and a sticker over their face is not going to do much to hide the fact that it's them. They're going to know it's them. Anecdotally, I've seen a few examples of screenshots hitting a major news site and the bride or bridesmaid it's about has seen it pretty quickly. Uh, Friendships have definitely dissolved over this. This is where some of the biggest problems seem to stem from and it doesn't seem to matter how tight and explicit the rules are, they will get broken. It seems like the posters are constantly on this very delicate tightrope between public and private. Now what does privacy really mean in a so-called closed group that's just a screenshot away from being public knowledge? To get an expert opinion, you know I like those, I spoke to Emily Laidlaw. She's an associate professor at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law in Canada, and she has law in her name. I love her. In 2017, she published an article called Online Shaming and the Right to Privacy. In it, she discusses if and how online privacy law can be applied to shaming. Spoiler, it's very complicated. <laughs> Emily starts by dividing online shaming up into four main categories. Vigilantism, bullying, bigotry, and gossiping. Gossip is one of those really funny categories where we gossip all the time. I think that uh, the stat that comes to mind is that I think two-thirds of our conversations are actually gossip. And often it's relatively harmless, but I think that what we've been seeing with the phenomenon of kind of digital conversations is that things get out of control. And so it's the way that things that might go viral or stories or rumors will um, will spread about people. And so it'll take just sort of these small gossipy conversations and turn them into things that spread profoundly harmful stories about individuals that are often untrue. So when does online gossip become a legal matter? 
there's a few different ways that it can happen. I mean, there's always the classic defamation claim where uh, if something is is communicated that is essentially not true and, and has a harmful impact on someone's reputation, then you might be able to sue in, in defamation for that. It, you can't really succeed at the moment at a privacy claim for most instances of gossip unless we're talking about a really significant invasion of privacy and you know often it might be something that is being spread through um through the media something like that then you might have an instance where it's actionable um but for the most part it's sort of this unregulated space which is part of the concern nowadays because of the fact that it spreads so quickly and can have such damaging effect and then there's not much that's reining it in one of the key ways that um, gossip is reined in is is online norms. It's it's not through the legal system. It's through the the communities online, kind of shaming somebody for a particular behavior, or or moderators of group deeming that particular content is unacceptable and taking it down, or even just the larger intermediaries like the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world taking it down. But it's rare, right? Especially if it's gossip. I'd say historically privacy was seen as uh, this idea of, of seclusion, right? That you had some right to be left alone, you had a right to have a protected space, and you think quintessentially of the idea that your home is, is a private place. But that made it difficult to ever think that you had a right to privacy when you left your home. And this has become really challenging when you look at the internet space where essentially everything that you post to some extent is public. So we've had to really think back through, well, what are we protecting when you protect privacy? Is it really just about this kind of secluded space? Is it location-based that way? And if it is, do we look at things like, well, maybe you posted it online, but you posted it to a private group and didn't intend it to a wider audience. Um, or you posted it publicly for everyone to see and therefore it is essentially a public statement. And then the other view of privacy that I think is really gaining ground is that privacy is about more than seclusion. It's about intimacy. It's about the idea that when you go about your daily lives, I mean, our lives are essentially private, even when we're in public places. But it's really difficult to then pinpoint where the boundary is of that, right? Because we can't say everything we do is private, right? If you are in public, for example, and you engage in particular behavior that perhaps is, is news, newsworthy, right, is of the public interest, then there might be a scenario there where even your essentially private life is no longer private anymore. Um, we haven't sorted that one out. I think it's the one with the most potential, um, but it's really hard to figure out what a legal rule would be. There's some, on the wedding shaming Facebook groups, quite often one of the rules will be, you know, no body shaming, no attacking someone based on race or, you know, religion. When I saw that, I sort of assumed it was what you said before about these norms of the platform. It's about policing its content. But it's possible that that's also a bit of a legal, a way of protecting the group legally, potentially. I'm not sure, but it sounds like it could be. It's interesting because it actually could make those that are moderating the group 
more vulnerable to being held liable for it. If they're saying, look, we moderate and we take down this particular content and a body shaming comment uh, is posted, say along with a picture or something, and they fail to take that down, there's a risk that they would be held liable for that, at least in certain jurisdictions. You know, if you were in the United States, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, the, the perspective there would be, there should be no liability on on either the platform providing the space, except in unusual circumstances, or even on those that are kind of hosting these particular groups with third-party content. And what we want to encourage is this kind of moderation and social responsibility. So we just kind of protect them from liability and encourage them to, to regulate it. Uh, the issue, of course, is that some don't. The person who invented the screenshot has quite a lot to answer for don't you think? It turns out that on this internet of group chats, memes and easily shared content, breaking the no-going-real-life rule and taking things from private to public is really easily done. To find out what it's like, I found Karen on Reddit. She was convinced her story was boring, but I reassured her, to an internet norm-obsessive like me, and probably you, it most definitely is not boring. Karen was in a private Facebook group and saw someone had posted a funny story about a wedding mishap. She screenshot it and shared it on a relevant subreddit and it spread faster than she anticipated. A priest had uh, made a mistake. He had accidentally put the incorrect names in the bride and groom and accidentally put the uh, maid of honour and the groom, oh, the best man in, in their place and sent the papers off to birth, death, marriages and accidentally married the best man and the maid of honour together. Wow. wow. And um, <laughs> It's quite a big um, error. It was an, an easy, easy annulment, um, and, but it was still funny. So, I mean, are these people that you knew? Were you at the wedding? No, no. So um, it was someone else that knew them personally that had posted to a private group and I um, am a lurker in that group. Because I had a good chuckle, I just screenshot it without a second thought. I made sure to blank out all the information because I didn't want it to get back to the person that had posted it, you know, just in case it wasn't her story to tell. I even, you know, did um, blanked out the um, likes and stuff because I didn't want the group to be identified uh, and posted it away. After it posted it, I went to bed and uh, woke up uh, in the morning and my phone had blown up. So just to clarify, so you saw the post in at this private Facebook group that you're in? Yes. Then you posted it on Reddit with all yes. the details out? Then it got to the front page of Reddit, then the media found it, and yes. then you were banned from the original group. Yes. Basically. And Yeah, basically. It had hit the front page, and there was uh, a lot of funny comments and no way, and people debating whether that could happen or not, the, you know, the legality of it. Um, I was on the group that I was in on Facebook, I was reading the comments on the original post and someone went, oh, you know, they've stolen this from Reddit. And I went, oh, no, what have I done? It was highlighted that it is the number one rule of the group that you are not allowed to share outside the group at all. Otherwise, it's an instant ban. So I kind of thought that sharing the post was not okay on Facebook just in case it got back to their, their friends or family. So when I screenshot it and put it on Reddit, and while also 
removing all the identifications from it, I thought I was I was in the clear. Turns out not. Someone then found who I was and kicked me from the group. No messages, no warning, nothing. I was just instant banned. When you found out it was it had, the story had become a lot bigger than you intended, how did that feel? I was actually quite shocked. I thought, in all honesty, um, a couple of people, you know, maybe 12 or, you know, 30 max, um, would, would see it, have a chuckle, save it, um, and then move on with their lives. But it created more drama than what was needed. And in all honesty, the, the article that was written was garbage. It didn't need to be written. It was just clickbait. Has this changed sort of your feelings on what is private and what isn't? Because I'd be quite confused, I think. To be absolutely honest, mm. yes, I was scared. So I've always been very open with my information. I use the same username for across all my accounts. Once the incident happened and I was banned from the group, I was trying to work out how that happened. And due to me being so open, um, it was as simple as typing in my username. I then started thinking, oh, no, what have I done? The internet is a big, bad, scary place, and there are people on there that can do some terrible things. And, um, you know, I hope that they wouldn't see my profile and that lead back to harm coming to my children. And that's an extreme case because, as I said you know, before, I thought this was you know, a boring story, a boring story. <laughs> but it made me think and, and and started questioning a lot of the stuff, you know, that I had been posting and things like that. And um, I actually deleted the original post that I had posted and then had a long, hard think about it and I actually created two other accounts. So if I was to comment in a situation like that again, I wouldn't use my main account. I understand why Karen's mind leapt to, I've done something terrible, I feel unsafe. That feeling of breaking uh, a norm, a rule, being outed and kicked out, excluded, is really affecting. And just because it's done in a virtual world doesn't make it any less real. We build these online groups for all sorts of specific purposes. Like you scroll through all these episode titles, you can see all the weird, wonderful, odd, different things people group themselves based on. But the one consistency is always a need to be social and around people with a common interest or cause. To be told you've broken the rules and don't belong anymore must feel alienating. And it certainly did for Karen. It can also feel very exposing to know that a lot of your internet footprint and comment history could be brought up in one succinct place by a very brief search. Wedding shaming isn't a big free-for-all, there are rules. The original wedding shaming group states, cover all identifying information before posting, no racism, sexism, homophobia, body shaming, etc. One of the wedding shamers I interviewed talks a little bit about this. This is Ashley R. I've never been in a wedding anything group before and it was definitely a new experience. I was shocked to see how tacky some people can be on their big day. Bridezilla stories are definitely my favourite, as well as redneck camo weddings. 
Comments about the bride or groom's body should definitely be off limits. Fat shaming, things like that. Anything a person can't change in 10 minutes should not be commented on. I think it's mostly a bit of fun, although if I ever get married, doubtful, I will make sure I don't use camo, that my dress fits properly and there's no embarrassing photos. There are a lot of strange moral conditions on what is okay to shame and what isn't. Personally, I find it very confusing and contradictory. It's also impossible to get right all the time. You can't shame someone for how they look, according to the rules, but you can slag off an ill-fitting wedding dress. Comments vary. People disagree with each other. Some stick up for the original poster. Some stick up for the person in the photo. You know, it's a social community. It's diverse. No one's getting it right all the time and no one's getting it wrong all the time. With such emphasis placed on these fair game for shaming rules, I started to question whether they're more about trying to create some kind of, I suppose, acceptable standard for shaming, or they're there to comfort and reassure the members. So you can go to town on that cake as long as you don't pick on XYZ. You're absolved of all guilt and responsibility. Even the description of the That's It and Wedding Shaming Facebook group seems to justify its own existence by giving really unsympathetic examples. I'll read it to you. Do you know someone who became a huge bridezilla after engagement and burned bridges with all of her friends because they wouldn't foot the bill for her wedding dress? How about that kid who bullied you in high school and had a wedding that looked like the KKK vomited burlap over it? Post that garbage here and let's have a laugh, my dudes. When it comes to first-person anecdotes, where anonymity is easier to preserve, it's sort of similar but more complex. Basically, it's okay to shame X person because they did something bad or they made a shameworthy mistake. Some of the scenarios presented seem pretty awful for everyone involved. Some are like eye-poppingly bad. Some involve abuse. It can be really, really dark. But we have a very small piece of context-free information with which to make up our minds. We really don't know how much of it is true. Most choose to take the poster's word for it. That's sort of the point of the group. But think back to a time when you told your side of a story. You know you weren't entirely fair to the other side. We all spin it in our favour. It's human. The most satisfying stories on wedding shaming groups are generally from the perspective of the wronged person or it's glaringly obvious who's the villain. But for a lot of them, I wonder what the shamed actually intended when they sent that text, or what's going on in their head when they pile pressure on their bridesmaids. Is it really as simple as the post suggests? Probably not. And I suppose what unsettles me is that we don't have any way to verify it. For every disgruntled wedding guest who feels wronged, there's an anxious bride or maid of honour seeing things through her own tunnel vision. Whatever the context, whatever's being shamed, and whatever the reason, my mind just keeps going back to the same issue. What if that person saw it? And if they did, and felt really bad about it, is it really worth it for a few hundred likes? That's the big question on the internet in 2019. Probably 2020, let's be real. Let's go back to our resident wedding photographers, Jen and Stephen. I ended up leaving the group. I joined for a while and kind of played with Steve. 
I wanted to be able to protect our bride just in case, or our couples, um, to just in case something was posted. As large as the group grew, the chances of that was very slim. We've also have very wonderful couples. I, we have had some eccentric couples in the past. We love those weddings. We really do. And we don't think any differently of, of those couples. That's just their personality. And if you did see one of your weddings on there, what do you think you would do? It's hard for me to keep my mouth shut. So I definitely would have said something I would have posted. I probably would have flagged the the post trying to get it down. And as photographers, we own the copyright to our photos uh, as far as like the United States legal stuff goes. So if somebody were to post photos from one of our weddings, even if like they blacked out the person's eyes or whatever, if we report that to Facebook, theoretically, Facebook should take that down. In the work that you do working with couples, are they often like very concerned about what other people are going to think of their choices, not necessarily online or in groups, but in general, are they looking out at other people's opinions quite intensely? I would say for the majority of our couples, yeah. It's There's a reason why they are not going off and getting eloped it's there's a reason they're not doing a courthouse wedding it's yeah yeah they they want to have this party that everyone wants to talk about that people will take pictures i mean it's it's the wedding industry has drastically changed since social media has happened we can look back at our what our wedding photos and that's what we have we don't have a hashtag with all of the pictures that guests have captured. You, people are, are very much aware of what type of, of decor they're putting down. Um, they have to have something incredibly beautiful that's that people will walk in and say, oh, this is the most beautiful wedding. Like People really want to please their guests and they want to stand out among other weddings. Um, so there is a huge influence um, by social media. So let's hear from someone who wanted to do things differently. Shell Robshaw Bryan is currently planning her wedding and documenting the process on her blog, The Bohemian Bride. She wrote a blog recently about the trend for wedding shaming, particularly pointing out the wedding shamers' love of picking apart DIY budget weddings. Crafty centerpieces and homemade decorations do occasionally get a good response on the group, but they usually have to be of a professional standard for that to happen. Usually they're ripped to shreds for being too individual or not polished enough. Shell doesn't agree with this. She's essentially the antithesis of a wedding shamer. What initially drew me to joining one of the wedding shaming groups on Facebook um, was really just mawkish curiosity. I was primarily intrigued to find out the sort of decisions that people were making that would invite, you know, these negative comments um, and, you know, sometimes outright vitriol that people had dared to make decisions that perhaps weren't mainstream or weren't considered to be standard. And the vast majority of them, they they kind of left me baffled. I was expecting that, you know, I would scroll through and I'd be able to have a good laugh and, you know, maybe chime in with some of the comments. I didn't agree with most of the negative comments that people were leaving. 
I think the main pressure and stress that we felt is in the fact that we didn't want a standard wedding. We wanted to do things differently. We didn't just want to do things differently for the sake of it, you know, just to be kind of different and alternative. We wanted to plan a day that actually reflects who we are, the sort of things we like, our tastes, etc., The majority of the wedding industry, you know, I I would say 90, if not 95% of wedding vendors are very, very standard and traditional. And they all have this very similar product offering. And the product offering is, is just really bland, in our opinion. We're not knocking anyone at all that wants a traditional day and that wants to do it, you know, in that way. But for us, that that just wouldn't be an authentic thing to do. And because of things like the colour scheme and the the type of vibe that we want to create at our wedding, we've actually found it really difficult to find suppliers. And I think the, the problem for us personally is twofold. We're on a very low budget around the £7,000 mark. Now, for most wedding suppliers, a total wedding budget of that, you know, is just ridiculously low. There was some research from Bridebook last week, actually, that came out that stated that the average UK wedding is now costing over £31,000. If you take into account that the average wedding dress purchased in the UK is over £1,300, Um, you know, that £7,000 total budget, you can see that would very, very quickly be used up. We did manage to find a handful of alternative suppliers, but what we found was that because there are so few of them, of course, they're able to charge a premium. Uh, So what we ended up doing was deciding that we were going to pay out for the right venue, but the everything else we were pretty much going to do ourselves. So I'm pretty crafty. I'm quite a creative person, thankfully. So that's really helped. Um, we have a crazy bright colour scheme going on. So the most stressful thing has been able to, to bring in the kind of wedding that, that we want, that is authentic to both of us. Um, and to do that, we've basically had, had to do it ourselves. The best way to describe what we're kind of doing on the day is we're very much into colour and glitter um, and we want to create a party vibe. We just want people to be happy, to feel relaxed, to be able to dress up, to look crazy if they want to um, and just have a really good time. You know, it actually really wouldn't surprise me at all to find some of our choices on wedding shaming groups. And you know what? If people don't like our style, then that's fine. But the thing that's important to us is that we're doing what is authentic. We're doing what is us. And, you know, our friends and family love us for the people that we are. They understand our kind of alternative and perhaps uh, slightly weird style. Um, and, you know, it's it's totally cool that, you know, that the, the majority of people aren't going to get that. And, and actually, you know, I'd probably be pretty proud if we ended up with some of our kind of bizarre creations on a wedding shaming group because actually other people's opinions on what we're doing isn't what matters doing what's authentic to us doing what reflects our personality 
personality. That's the important thing. Glitter. Best wedding dress code ever, I think. Let's go back to law professor Emily for a couple of minutes. Theoretically, if somebody found their wedding photos on a shaming group and they were being shamed quite viciously, when would they have grounds to take legal action? Say in Canada, for example, where you are. I mean, it depends what your cause of action would be, you know? So if you if you just want the photo taken down, you uh, perhaps own the intellectual property in the photo. It's a relatively easy route to, to have that taken down. If you were in Canada and the UK and you say, look, these shaming comments are spreading lies about me um, are actually, and are, are defamatory, you would likely be successful in having it, the content taken down. Um, at least you might, might be successful. If it's a Facebook or a Twitter, they largely comply with Canadian and European laws for these types of notice and takedowns. It wouldn't necessarily be the case for certain purely American-based websites. So, for example, the, the dirty or rip-off report are really loath to remove things. If it's not falling into the category of, you know, some sort of online lies about you with the shaming section, and it's just incredibly mean, then it's really difficult. You know, you could claim that there's a it was revealing private information about you. But that's, I mean, how is online shaming fit that category? It doesn't really, right? Not really, it, no. Definitely not some sort of, you know, high, something that's highly offensive to reasonable people. It's, um, it doesn't really fit the categories of, of privacy for that. What ends up being the best route is really through the terms and conditions. Facebook is um, increasingly become stricter about the content it allows to to stay up on its site. But even then, I don't think shaming per se violates uh, Facebook terms and conditions. I'd have to take a look at them again. Um, and Twitter is generally loath to take things down. It's, it's starting to change a little bit, but, but it tends to leave most of that content up. You know, if someone's telling a story about a bad wedding that they went to, that's also their story to tell. And that's where it becomes tricky here because who has rights over that? You know, the perspective of some sort of um, guest at a wedding about how, you know, it was this horrible experience or the food was terrible. Why can't they tell that story? That's the issue. It's hard to pin that down. It might be mean-spirited to do that, but generally speaking, we, we can talk about our experiences in life uh, as much as we want. And, and I think that's a bigger problem we're seeing online with a lot of this is that who owns the narrative of these stories? It's quite hard to imagine wedding shaming existing in uh, my parents' day or my grandparents, and not just because of the lack of social media thing. It's because people generally went to their local church or the registry office and they did what they could afford and what was sort of normal and acceptable in their community or religion. So let's take an alternative view for a moment. Maybe wedding shaming is a natural response to some of the worst things about a wedding. So the pressure on guests to give money and gifts, high expectations for wedding vendors like florists and caterers, pressure on the couple to be original, memorable, get it all organised in time. The sheer number of things that friends of the bride and groom need to organise and do for them, the constant change in trends, the 
the fact that every sort of year or two it seems as a like a new like set of things that a wedding should include like I don't think my parents would have ever like created a signature cocktail I just can't picture it is wedding culture partly to blame for all this a wedding shame is just kind of responding to these trends keeping them in check expressing their genuine distaste when couples are OTT misguided or need bringing back down to earth what holds me back from really grasping this perspective is the gleeful way people pile on other people's weddings as well as the fact the members I spoke to are quite open about the fact that it's mainly just for fun for them if wedding shaming does perform some kind of social function, it's possible it's secondary or accidental. And then, during the first week of November, I saw, and many other people saw, a tweet full of redacted Facebook screenshots. It promised to be very, very juicy. I read it immediately, and it seemed like the ultimate salacious drama-filled wedding shaming example anyone's ever seen. A bride who had crowdfunded her wedding and raised over $30,000 from friends and relatives was now deciding to postpone the wedding and use the cash to pay for a pre-wedding honeymoon instead because it had all been far too stressful. She notified her Facebook friends, apparently assuming they'd get it and wish her well. They didn't. Um, the screenshots are full of the censored names of family members and friends, insisting she call them immediately. One threatens to sue, another demands their money back immediately. The one dissenting voice says, it's all fine, go and enjoy your pre-wedding honeymoon. <laughs> Whatever the fuck that is. The bride continues to make things worse with her own comments, saying there's no reason to get all lawyery on me now. The bride even claims to end up in hospital because of the stress of it all. She's basically caricatured as the worst person imaginable. A lot of commenters loved it, both on the subreddit it was originally posted to and in the wedding shaming groups. It blew up on media publications all over the world. It was perfect wedding shaming fodder. People loved it. They were demanding more screenshots. You couldn't make it up. Except you could. There were a few sceptical voices that didn't buy it. I believed it at first uh, because it's not too different from some of the more outrageous posts we've seen before. It's definitely up there. But as I was reading the comments from family and friends, it struck me that people just don't talk like this. The tone of each family member was too similar. There were no likes or reactions. The bride was just too too awful to be real. The story kept escalating to an extreme degree. It was all laid on far too thick. Some internet sleuths, who you can always rely on, went much further. Several Reddit commenters found that the site hosting the screenshots was brand new and this wedding shame drama was the only content hosted on it. Many, including BuzzFeed, surmised that the post was a viral marketing attempt that briefly succeeded in getting lots of traffic to this particular domain, and it just happened to use wedding shaming as an angle because it knew it would get a lot of clicks and views and comments. It's no wonder that most people were taken in by it. What it did highlight to me was how ravenous we are for this drama. We sort of don't care if it's not real. It's also an apt warning for anyone planning to stage something for the sake of clicks and views. The internet will suss you out in a matter of hours. Finally, let's go back to Dr. Cagle again. 
I don't think that shame in and of itself is a bad thing all the time, right? It's a tool, it's a social tool. Um, and like many tools, it can be put to, to good and bad uses. The difficulty is that at some point, if you want to draw boundaries around, you know, what to respond to critically and what to respond to positively, ultimately it comes down to questions of ethics and, and norms. You know, where do you draw the line? None of us um, arrive in this world fully socially formed. We learn how to behave from the people around us. If you do it in a way that isn't harmful to the other folks involved, I've learned a lot from being on Twitter and just shutting up and like listening to other people's or reading other people's conversations. As a teacher, sometimes I'll see tweets float by from current students who talk about things that their teachers have done that were upsetting to them for some reason. And that gives me the opportunity to reflect on my own practices and think about, do I think that's fair? Do I think that's not fair? And so those sorts of discursive spaces, I think, can be really productive, not just for the people getting catharsis, but for other people looking to kind of feel their way through the world and say, okay, here's how I've been doing things. Here's how I've been thinking about things. How do other people see this behavior? How do other people interpret it? How have other people acted? As soon as we start talking pictures, anonymity is out the window. Do you need the catharsis of complaining about that cake enough to risk who, whoever's it was having their feelings extraordinarily hurt? And maybe the answer is yes. Have people just not thought about the fact that somebody might stumble upon themselves being made fun of? Internet drama is basically gossip, isn't it? And we all love a bit of a gossip. I've been hard on the wedding shamers in this one, I know. But I don't want you to come away from this episode thinking wedding shamers are nasty people. They're not. They're us. Entirely human. Many of the things they post, we have said to each other in private, in WhatsApp messages, or just thought to ourselves. They type it and put their name next to it, which isn't you know, I won't call it noble, but it's definitely nailing their colours to the wall. You could argue that there's a chain of responsibility here. Someone makes their wedding photo public and shares it with their followers. Depending on their privacy settings, that could be just for their friends or for anyone to find. That's then screenshot and shared out of context to people for the sole purpose of laughing at it, criticising, or both. It should end there, really. It's already pretty bad. If the original person finds it, they'll understand and they have a reaction, whatever that is. And they're entitled to that reaction. If someone then takes that screenshot post and, say, writes an article for the Daily Mail about it, or shares it with uh, their tens of thousands of Twitter followers, whatever it is, that continues to transform that image from something intended to be for a certain audience and now something for public commentary. Who's ultimately responsible? Well, is it the person who should have known that their public image could be shared out of their control? Is it the group moderators? Is it the group members? Is it the person who then wants to get likes from their own followers, who thinks that this is interesting fodder for them? Who knows? Honestly, I think we'd be missing the point entirely if we didn't all take responsibility. Everyone in the chain plays their part. 
Based on the cult checklist from the Cult Education Institute that we always use, wedding shaming groups sail through scoring zero. The only sort of iffy part is that the mods can occasionally be a bit authoritarian about what is and isn't allowed, and they're definitely secretive, but it's nothing too unusual. Uh, and it's pretty much all set out in the group rules before you join. People are free to move in and out. There's lots of debate and disagreement. There's definitely not like one school of thought or one specific taste that is the only allowable type of wedding thing. And there's no irrational fear of other people, just a need to keep things private. So not a cult, just one of those idiosyncratic online communities that we love so much. Now that this is done, and I, honestly, I can't tell you how relieved I am. When I finished the episode on pickup, I was like depressed for about two weeks. This one I'm just sort of done and bored. I've decided I'm opening the Christmas gin when this is all done and published and finished. I'm switching off all my wedding shaming group notifications. I'm just, I'm not gonna look at them again for quite a while. I think it's one of those things you can definitely have too much of. Voyeurism can be bad for you, yeah. And ultimately I feel cold when I look at a bridesmaid's dress, I really do. There's something about soft blush pink that just inspires very little in me. If you're looking for an antidote to all this, it does exist. And you know, by the way, if you go straight to the wedding shaming group and join that, I mean, absolutely feel free. You should see it for yourself and make your own mind up. You'll probably scroll for a good hour, so put some time aside. If you're looking for an antidote to all of this, may I suggest a Facebook group called That's It, I'm Wedding Praising. That's It, I'm Wedding Praising was set up as, quote, That's It, I'm Wedding Shaming's wholesome, less bitchy sister. Same rules apply. Use this group to sing your wedding praises and plan your upcoming nuptials. This much more positive group has nearly 15,000 members, making it much smaller than the shaming group. The groups don't seem to be at total odds with each other. The shaming group and praising group even share a few admins and moderators. The rules are even quite similar, with this one very clear exception. If you don't have anything nice to say, then do not comment. In terms of content though, the praising group couldn't be more different. People proudly share their themed weddings, and individual tastes are celebrated rather than slagged off. The group has a secondary function too. People ask for wedding planning advice and opinions and get genuine responses. People share and comment with enthusiasm. It's clearly a totally different group with a totally different purpose. Positivity, honesty, freedom to be yourself basically. But of course, it's smaller than the shaming group and it's less infamous and you know, none of these stories are going viral, but that's okay. Maybe the praising and shaming groups represent that often very natural dichotomy between light and shade. Something we all have in us, something we see all the time. One often can't exist without the other. That's a Cult is written and edited by me, Helen McCarthy. I'm on Twitter at Helen L. McCarthy. The music is composed by Antila Wardy. You can find his information in the episode description. Thanks, as always, to all my contributors, Jen and Stephen Van Elk, Emily Laidlaw, Shell Robshaw Bryan, Cagle, and Karen. Their details are in the episode description, including Jen and Stephen's podcast, Wedded. Also, thanks to my contributors from the wedding shaming groups themselves, Ashley R, Diane, Jay, Ellen, and M. Please do rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are. 
I also want to hear your internet cult suggestions, so please do tell me what you think I should cover. If it's niche, internet-based and a bit strange, I'll probably be interested in it. Thank you very much for listening and I will see you in 2020.